welcome to episode 148 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I would like to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Danny Bird, Jennifer Hall, Seek Mice, Raina Barnes, Brittany Arner, Jessica Bird, Jackie Burton, and Zummy. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Scream. Scream was released in 2022. It has 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. 25 years after a streak of brutal murders shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro, a new killer dons the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. I'm going to keep this review short and sweet because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. But I loved Scream and I was worried that this would try and like redefine the legacy or try and be too clever and ruin it. But this film is very aware of what it is and it just leans right into it. And as a result, it ends up being super entertaining. So it opens with the pivotal home alone and the phone rings scene, which immediately made me feel at ease because I thought, oh, they're going to spend this whole movie being self-referential. They are going to really lean heavily into the old Scream movies and they're going to embrace it and not try and stray away from it. And from this very beginning opening scene, they use the legacy of the previous Scream films to add lots of satirical commentary, particularly on the current state of horror films. So in the very beginning, we have the pivotal, what's your favourite scary movie? And it turns into a discussion about elevated horror. Those kind of psychological horror films like The Babadook, Hereditary, Get Out. And the commentary is about how you can't be a true horror fan unless you like really clever horror movies. And that continues the whole way through the film, which I thought was really clever and a really nice nod to how horror movies have changed, but also how that can be quite problematic and lead to a certain element of like snobbery within the genre. So it obviously takes place within the Scream universe and then there's films called Stab that have been made that portray the murders that happen within Scream, if that makes sense. So there is just these constant references to both the fictional film Stab and the killings that happened within the Scream universe. And it's so meta that sometimes it actually made me a little bit dizzy (laughs) when I was watching it because I was like, oh, it's like referencing itself within itself within itself. I don't know what to do with that. But actually, the result of that is that you end up playing this whodunit game right along with the main characters. So as the audience, the characters are voicing all the things that you are thinking. So there's lots of moments where the characters are like, that sounds like something that the killer would say. And why would you go down into the basement on your own when there's a killer on the loose? And actually, all of that, like leaning into it being really meta and being really self-referential, meant that it could take these like kind of nice little jabs at the slasher tropes and all of the ridiculousness that happens within horror movies and it makes it really entertaining. There was this great moment in the film where one of the characters is in the in their house. You think that Ghostface is in the house but you're not actually sure and they keep doing that thing where the music builds and builds and builds and there's going to be a jump scare and then the jump scare doesn't happen. And then again, the music builds and builds and builds and the jump scare doesn't happen. And they do that a number of times. And actually, like, I loved it. I thought it was really funny and really silly. And it was almost scary movie-esque. And I think if you're a fan of Scream or just a fan of slasher movies in general, 
that you will appreciate all of those little silly nods to the tropes of horror films. And you know what? It actually works, I think, the whole way through it. And it also heavily references the fact that some of the Scream films just weren't very good. And it kind of nods to that and says, we know these films weren't very good. But at the same time, it still manages to be able to say that sometimes fandoms can be really toxic and how diehard fandoms don't allow wiggle room within the franchises. And I thought, wow, this is, I mean, it's silly, but it's also really clever at the same time. The other thing that I loved about this was bringing Dewey, Sydney, and Gail back. And it was a delight to watch them. It really was. And I actually thought how good it was that those kind of like mainstream movie actors, that they recognised that actually Scream was really beneficial to them as actors within their career. So it might not be like particularly highbrow, but it was still career defining and that's important. The first thing that I sort of really struggled with with this film was that the new generation of victims, as it were, they just didn't entertain me at all. So all of the characters were embodiments of character stereotypes in horror films, which is fine, totally understand why they did that and respect that they did that. But the acting was not great at various points. You know, and I love to see a final girl showdown, but I want a final girl showdown to be with a character that I really like. To be honest, there were points in this film where there was characters where I was like, oh, I couldn't care less if you die or not. Like, couldn't care less. If Ghostface comes for you, not even going to be upset about it. The other thing that I kind of disliked, which was also pointed out by Domino's on Instagram, who commented on the post that I put up about this film. So they pointed out that it didn't stand up to a second viewing because it lacked any real nuance. So while it was entertaining to watch, there wasn't those hints or those subtleties about the killer throughout the film where when you watch it a second time, you go, oh, how did I not see that? How did I not notice that? And I kind of think I wouldn't watch it again, to be honest. So is it out of this world? No, it's not out of this world. But is it entertaining? Absolutely, yes. It's funny, it's silly, it's self-referential, it's gory, it really sticks with the original Scream format. And if you're a Scream fan, it's not going to leave you filled with rage. So that's, I think I'm going to give it four stars. Which brings us to our story this week. And our story this week is a continuation of last week's story. So last week we looked at the Hellfire Club in Dublin on Montpellier Hill. We looked at their alleged dastardly deeds and the hauntings that have apparently sprung up from those dastardly deeds and today we are going to another branch of the hellfire club but this time we're going underground so let's get into it in the 1740s west wickham which lies to the west of london had suffered drought upon drought and the crops failed continually The people were being pushed further and further towards starvation and there was no work locally for people to try and earn enough to survive. Sir Francis Dashwood realised that in order to help the local people he needed to create some form of employment and he set about excavating the old chalk mines that wormed their way under the ground. The idea was simple. He would excavate the old mines and used the chalk that was mined to build a new and safer road between High Wycombe and West Wycombe, and the local people could earn a decent enough wage to survive their current agricultural crisis. The men were paid one shilling a day, 
which at the time was enough to tide them over, and the new road was built which provided safe passage for carriages between the towns. Overall, it was an economic success, and once the need for chalk mines was no more, Sir Francis set about completing a new and altogether more bizarre task, creating a world of grandeur under the ground. In reality, nobody knows for sure why Sir Francis created this odd little world under the ground. It would have made more sense to extend the quarry and leave it at that, but instead Sir Francis commissioned the creation of a long, winding tunnel that went quarter of a mile under the hill. The caves extended underground, with the individual caves or chambers connected by a series of long, narrow tunnels and passageways. According to the Wikipedia entry, a route through the underground chambers proceeds from the entrance hall to the steward's chamber and Whitehead's cave, through Lord Sandwich's circle, named after John Montague, 4th Earl of Sandwich, Franklin's cave, named after Benjamin Franklin, a friend of Dashwood who visited West Wickham, the banqueting hall, allegedly the largest man-made chalk cavern in the world, the Triangle, to the Miner's Cave, and finally, across an underground river named the River Styx, lies the final cave, the Inner Temple, where the meetings of the Hellfire Club were held, and which is said to lie 300 feet directly beneath the church on top of West Wickham Hill. In the 1740s and onwards, a boat would have been used to cross the River Styx to get to the Inner Temple. In Greek mythology, the River Styx separated the mortal world from Hades, and the subterranean position of the Inner Temple directly beneath St. Lawrence's Church was supposed to signify heaven and hell. There are many that believe that the layout of sections of the caves are supposed to represent the female reproductive system, and there are those who suggest that the layout is reminiscent of caves that Sir Francis would have visited while he was on his grand tour in Greece. Some sections of the cave are said to be representative of paganism and some of the Knights Templar. The truth is that we will never know exactly why Sir Francis laid the caves out the way he did. Perhaps there was some symbolism in it, or perhaps he was just showing off. There was a trend at the time for society men to try and build the grandest and most exquisitely decorated manors. And there were many other men at the time who were building gothic caves under their land. Regardless of why Sir Francis actually built the caves, it is very likely that meetings of the Hellfire Club were held here, although it wasn't called the Hellfire Club at the time. They called themselves the Knights of St. Francis of Wickham. Much like the Hellfire Club of last week's episode, it would seem that this branch was also a place for high society men to come and drink their fill and have as much sex as they could. Sir Francis returned from his grand tour having acquired a particular hatred for Catholicism and had himself painted as the Pope toasting a statue of Venus, so it could be also assumed that mock religious ceremonies are likely to have taken place here. In fact, the meeting place of the Hellfire Club before the caves were refurbished were the ruins of an old Cistercian Abbey, so the religious satire was evident. There were letters discovered that outlined the meetings of this branch of the Hellfire Club, 
and there was as much drink as could be consumed and as much women as could be consumed also and it was a general rule that no one was allowed to interrupt the sexual activities of others. There is also a record of a practical joke played by MP John Wilkes on the Earl of Sandwich as outlined by the Hellfire Cave's official website. Wilkes had contrived the night before to bring into his cell a great baboon, which he had provided for the occasion. When the Brotherhood retired to their cells after dinner to prepare for the ceremony, he availed himself of the office of the keeper of the chapel, which he then filled to convey this creature dressed up in the fantastic garb in which childish imagination clothes devils into the chapel, where he shut him up in a large chest that stood there to hold the ornaments and utensils of the table when the society was away. To the spring of the lock of this chest, he fastened a cord, which he drew under the carpet that was on the floor to his own seat. And there he brought the end of it through a hole made for the purpose, in such a manner that he could readily find it. And by giving it a pull, opened the chest and let the baboon loose, whenever he pleased, without being perceived by the rest of the company. At the chosen moment, Wilkes pulled the cord and out popped the wretched animal which leapt onto the shoulders of Lord Sandwich, who, feeling the shock and seeing the animal grinning horribly at him, concluded that the devil had obeyed his summons in good earnest and had come to carry him bodily away. The harder he tried to shake off the poor creature, the tighter it clung, while Sandwich cried out, Spare me, gracious devil, spare a wretch who never was sincerely your servant. I sinned only from the vanity of being in the fashion. Thou knowest I never have been half so wicked as I pretended, never have been able to commit the thousand part of the vices which I have boasted. Leave me, therefore, and go to those who are more truly devoted to your service. I am but half a sinner. So he dressed a baboon up as the devil and set it loose on another club member as a joke. Make of that what you will. Like with the other branches of the Hellfire Club, very little is known about what really happened at these meetings, aside from drinking and sex. Paul Whitehouse was the steward of the club, and his primary role was to record the Testament of St. Francis of West Wickham, and to keep a record of all of the goods consumed and equipment used for the tunnels and he kept this record meticulously. Paul Whitehouse was the secretary of the club, but he was also a great lover of wine and women, and he was a knower of secrets. He was loved by the masses and hated by politicians because he wrote witty political satire outing politicians and members of high society for their dastardly deeds. He was not just a secretary there to keep minutes and order wine, but he was also a fixer, the man who knew how to get you exactly what you wanted. He knew where to find women, he wrote political satire and speeches, and he was skilled at blackmail because he knew all the dirty dealings of the people in power. But whatever hold the Hellfire Club had over him, he was determined to keep their secrets. Three days before his death in 1774, Paul Whitehouse summoned his servants and ordered them to build a bonfire in his garden. They obliged, and Whitehouse spent the next 72 hours meticulously burning every piece of paper, record and book associated with his record-keeping for the Hellfire Club. And just hours after he was finished, he died in his bed. 
This is not the end of Paul Whitehouse's story, however. He requested that his body be left to medical science, but that his heart was to be given to Sir Francis Dashwood and kept in an urn in the mausoleum on top of the Hellfire Caves. There is a record in a 19th century pamphlet that visitors to the mausoleum would open the urn and throw the shriveled heart to each other until one day it was stolen by an Australian soldier. According to legend, an apparition of Paul Whitehouse is still seen today in the form of an old man in old-fashioned clothes, shuffling around at the entrance to the caves. He will turn and scowl at visitors and then disappear. He is said to be doomed to wander the caves searching for his heart until it is returned to its rightful place in the mausoleum above. According to a YouTube documentary about the Hellfire Caves, a worker claimed that a visitor had become lost in the caves during a visit and in all of the twists and turns and passages that led to nowhere, he could not find his way out. Until he spotted an elderly man and he thought, brilliant, I'll follow him out and he made his way along the passages behind the old man, maintaining a nice distance so as not to betray his inability to find his way out. The old man shuffled around a corner, followed by the visitor, who stopped in shock when he was faced with the stone wall of the cave. A dead end. And no sign of the old man who had seemingly disappeared right through the wall. Paul Whitehouse isn't the only resident ghost in the caves. The other frequently seen spectre has nothing to do with the Hellfire Club, but it is a tragic story nonetheless. Suki is the ghost bride of the Hellfire Caves, and it is unclear whether her story is based in fact or more so a local legend. Either way, there is a plaque in the caves that outlines her sad story. Suki was a servant girl, who was employed at the nearby pub The Georgian Dragon. She was beautiful and was much sought after by the local lads. But Suki had high hopes that she would catch the eye of local aristocracy and marry out of her class. Despite the continuous advances of men, Suki maintained her chastity and turned down each suitor which became a bone of contention for local lads. They could not understand how they were continuously being rejected by this servant girl and were irked by her insistence on waiting for a gentleman to be her suitor. This was magnified when a young and wealthy nobleman visited the Georgian dragon one day and Suki flirted with him in a way that she had not with any other man. The man was clearly interested in her and the local men were furious. How dare she turn them down and then flirt so outrageously with a wealthier man? They hatched a plan to teach Suki a lesson. They forged a letter, pretending to be the wealthy man and asked Suki to meet him in the caves in her wedding dress. He was madly in love with her and wanted to run away and elope with her. Suki obliged, delighted that her waiting had paid off and went to the caves in the dead of night in her wedding dress to meet the man of her dreams. What was waiting for her was not the man of her dreams, but a group of local men who laughed and jeered at her in her naivety. She was rightly devastated and overcome with embarrassment and shame. Through her tears, she picked up some stones and flung them at the group. They retaliated and picked up a handful of stones and threw them back. Except one was much bigger. More like a rock than a stone. 
and it struck Suki in the head. And she died in her wedding dress, with tears wetting her beautiful face. Suki's ghost is said to roam the caves in her wedding dress, and her cries of anguish are heard throughout the tunnels. As a side note, there is also a very alarming wedding dress wearing mannequin in the caves, which I can only assume adds to the overall creep factor of the place. Visitors and workers alike also report regular phantom footsteps, which seems to be the most prominent paranormal experience in the caves, that and pebbles being thrown by unseen forces. There have also been reports of chanting being heard from deep in the inner temple, with witnesses saying that it sounds like monks chanting in another language, most likely Latin. In the context of the Hellfire Club, this makes sense, as the group were well known for performing mock religious ceremonies. This branch elected a chief abbot every year, and they smuggled women into the caves dressed as nuns. The final ghost, or rather alleged ghost worth mentioning, is the ghost of none other than Benjamin Franklin. The actual involvement of Franklin in the activities of the Hellfire Clubs is hazy at best, but he was good friends with Sir Francis Dashwood and did visit the caves when he was in High Wycombe. This connection, regardless of how tenuous, seems to have been enough for the ghost of Benjamin Franklin to be seen in and around the caves. He is alleged to have been a member of the Knights of St. Francis, and indeed there is a cave in the tunnels that is named after him out of reverence and respect for his great achievements. He officially revisited the tunnels in 1770, after the Hellfire Club had been disbanded, but the purpose of this visit is entirely unknown. Some believe that Franklin haunts the Hellfire Caves looking for an item that he had hidden there in life, and there have been numerous visitors that have reported seeing a man who resembles Franklin, dressed in old-fashioned clothes, standing in the shadows at the back of Franklin's cave. As with the Hellfire Club on Montpellier Hill, much of what happened at the Hellfire Caves is shrouded in mystery. We do know for a fact that Sir Francis Dashwood's members met there, and there seems to be slightly more written record of what happened at these meetings, and it was fundamentally drink and debauchery but there are some who speculate that there are bodies buried deep in the tunnels as a result of ritualistic human sacrifice. But that seems kind of unlikely. What is likely, however, is that many women were abused in these tunnels and that there were probably practical jokes that went way too far. Local fear and superstition probably conflated the meetings of the club with devil worship and human sacrifice. But there is no denying that many people have had strange experiences down there. Is it because their senses are reacting to a completely different world under the ground? Or is it the residual energy of Paul Whitehouse looking for his heart? Or Suki looking for her one true love? Who knows? But the caves remain a beacon for paranormal investigators and casual onlookers alike, who are all determined to experience the darkness of the Hellfire Caves. So I will post some pictures of the Hellfire Club on social media, so on Instagram, on Facebook and on Patreon. I'm going to post a picture of the map of the Hellfire Club because that really demonstrates the way that it's laid out. And it's it's quite interesting to see it, actually, because it is a strange layout. I will post the picture of Suki, or at least the mannequin version of Suki that was sent to me by the lovely Kelly. And honestly... It is. It definitely makes it a thousand times worse, that picture of the mannequin. 
In fact, there are loads of other mannequins down there too, which obviously make everything a thousand percent more scary. And I will post some other general pictures of the Hellfire Cave so that you can get an idea of what they look like because they are really striking. And I think when we talk about caves, you kind of think of like mining caves, natural caves, but this is so, I mean, they are gothic and beautiful and you can imagine all sorts of weird shit happening down there back in the day. But do I think anything satanic and human sacrifice-y happened down there? Probably not. When you watch videos about the Hellfire Caves, you will see like paranormal investigators and stuff talking about how there's bodies buried down there. But there is no real, I don't think there's any evidence of there being any murders down there or bodies being found down there. I really do think that Sir Francis Dashwood, when he'd finished excavating the chalk mines and the crisis had been averted and everything was kind of a little bit more stable, I think he thought, wow, this would be the perfect place to host the Hellfire Club meetings. And I don't think there's anything really much deeper to it than that, in that it was a place of privacy, it was under the ground, they were never going to be disturbed and they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. I uh, I included the story about the baboon because I just thought it was so indicative of the type of shit they got up to and how ridiculous it was that I thought, I'm, I'm keeping that in there. Like, how is that funny? How is that a funny joke? Letting a baboon dressed as the devil loose on your friends is not, it's not a very good joke. I think for two reasons that story is interesting. Number one, it kind of highlights the high jinx that these people got up to. Like the absolute ridiculous jokes they played on each other that obviously were borderline dangerous. Like baboons are vicious. That that thing could have killed people. And secondly, the Earl of Sandwich reacted by saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't do half of the things that I said I did. I don't actually worship the devil. I have never been as evil as I claim to have been. And I haven't done all the stuff that I claim that I've done. So it does sound like there was a lot of almost adolescent boasting that was going on between these men where they were all trying to almost out evil each other and be like, look how hedonistic I am. I've done all of these things. So that probably contributes to the reputation that the Hellfire Club got and maybe their actual activities were a lot tamer than we currently think they are. I think the story of Paul Whitehouse is probably the most fascinating story of the Hellfire Caves. He was so dedicated to both the caves, the club and to Francis Dashwood. It made me think that like, did Francis Dashwood have something on him? Did Francis Dashwood allow him to enact some sort of sordid thing that he was into or was he in love with Francis Dashwood because he obviously was really dedicated to the Hellfire Club and all of these records he burned everything before he died I wonder did he know he was going to die had he been sick and then he thought before I die I need to get rid of all of the evidence of the deeds that have been committed down there and to be so dedicated to a person and a place that he got his heart put into an urn and apparently there are records that he paid Francis Dashwood a certain amount of money in order to have his heart put into an urn and kept in the mausoleum and Dashwood obviously obliged and had a mock religious funeral service for him or for his heart rather when it was delivered to the mausoleum and it was kept there for years until it was allegedly stolen 
And to be honest, if you are somebody who goes to a mausoleum and lobs around a dead person's heart that is all shriveled up and mummified, throwing it around like a game of hot potato, then you deserve to be haunted. You absolutely deserve to be haunted. You deserve to wake up with the ghost of Paul Whitehouse standing over you in bed at night time because that kind of behaviour is unacceptable. And if that is true, that story about his heart and the heart being stolen, of all kind of hauntings that exist out there, I kind of believe that 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 is the most likely, that he had a dying wish and that wish was fulfilled and then somebody stupidly took that away from him, took a part of his body. So if I was dead, I'd be coming back looking for my heart too because I'd be very pissed off if somebody ignored my dying wish or pissed all over my dying wish. I think as well the story of Suki is really sad. Whether or not it's true is another is another question, but the story itself is really, really sad. And if it played out that way, then oh I just sort of feel I feel so sorry for her, thinking that her kind of wish had come true to escape her lower class life and then to be met with the local boys who are taking the piss and then to die accidentally. Because that's what the implication is, that she died accidentally. Um, the story goes on to say that they, they, well, in some instances, the story says that they tried to carry her body back to the inn to like to try and save her, but she died en route, which is really awfully sad. But I think in regards to her, like the apparitions of her, I mean, the mannequin down there of her is freaky as. Talk about priming people to see things when they go down there, having all those freaky deaky mannequins knocking around. I don't know. And as for Benjamin Franklin, it's a pretty tenuous connection. But maybe, like Paul Whitehouse, he had some sort of undying connection to the Hellfire Caves. And that was where he that was where he had to come back to because he's looking for something or he's trying to hide something or he's trying to find something that he hid while he was alive. Who knows? So in short, do I think that the Hellfire Caves is somewhere where there were like human sacrifices and devil worship? No, I don't. But it, that's not to say that horrific things didn't happen there and that there might still be residual hauntings of the likes of Paul Whitehouse or Suki if the story is true couple of things before we wrap up this episode I listened to the podcast Knock Once for Yes they did an episode way back in May 2018 about the Hellfire Caves and it was a delight to listen to it was absolutely gorgeous I'd never listened to Knock Once for Yes before and I listened to that episode because I was trying to find information about the Hellfire Caves and I absolutely loved it there also was a real lack of real people's experiences about the hellfire caves so a lot of the stories were and you know visitors say that this happens or visitors have reported that this happened but I couldn't find any of these visitor reports firsthand so I I just couldn't find them so I am hoping to be able to visit the hellfire caves a little bit later in the year and try and see if I have any experiences down there myself While I was researching for stories for the Hellfire Caves, I came across a YouTube channel called Overnight and they they have a huge amount of subscribers and views and whatever. So most of you will probably have heard of them. I'd never heard of them, but they did a series where they went to various haunted locations across the UK and Ireland. And actually, I found their I found their content really entertaining. So they're called Overnight it's a YouTube channel, they're paranormal investigators and I, I just really enjoyed watching their content. So it might be 
of interest to some of you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode all about the Hellfire Caves. If you've been to the Hellfire Caves and had any experiences down there, please do let me know. If you would like to find out more about me or the podcast, you can do so by logging on to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next time. <laughs>